every day you need to ask yourself this question. Some of us need to ask ourselves this question more than once. These are the questions that you need to ask yourself. Is he worthy of a godly attitude? The answer is yes. But the question is, in my life, is he? This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number two, and after you have found that out of respect for God's word, if you would please stand as we read our text, Philippians chapter number two, uh, beginning in verse number 17. Philippians two, verse 17, this is the word of God. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy. And rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we praise you for your word this morning. We pray that its truths would be real to us today. May your word be clear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. We began our journey together on the topic of sanctification by looking at what could be called the ethic of sanctification. And we began to see that in verse 12 of Philippians 2, where Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we saw together that the ethic of sanctification or the moral principle that surrounds sanctification is that it is the work of man 100%. And sanctification is the work of God 100%. That basically man works out what God has implanted in him. And then we went together from the ethic of sanctification to the evidence of sanctification. And we saw, church, that the evidence of sanctification begins with our attitudes. And we saw that in verse number 14 where Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And one of the things that we saw together is that one of the evidences of sanctification is that we do not do anything with those low tones of disapproval, those low tones of discontent, those low tones of dissatisfaction, the gongusmas that we, that we said that sometimes we as Christians get involved in. When you, when you get behind that, it only happens in Louisa, but when you get behind that plow, that plow tractor on 522, you're late for church or you're late for work. Or you, and you get behind that tractor going 20 miles an hour down 522, what do you do? Do you sit behind the wheel of the car and you say, 
praise God, I'm going to be late because I failed to plan to leave early. No, what do you do? Get out of the way, man. Right? You're not supposed to be doing farming on Sunday. This is the Lord's day. That's what you say. That's what we call in Greek, gongusmos. Or you get behind the person, Bonnie, in the checkout line. And you're in a hurry because we're Christians, therefore we're always in a hurry. You go to the grocery store and you're in a hurry. And you, you've only got three or four items in your hands and you get into the checkout line. And the person in front of you, you're in the express lane that's 12 items or less. And the person in front of you has got 35 items. And so the question is, is that the level of your sanctification is what do you do when you stand behind that person in the, in the checkout line that's got 35 items in the express lane? Well, some people would be godly and say, well, I, I just rejoice in the Lord that he obviously wants me to wait. No, what do most Christians do? You either do this, Blue, you either do this in your brain or we do this out loud as that person is putting their items in the, in, on the belt. You go one, two, three, and you make them know that you know they're not supposed to be there. You laugh because you've done it. That's what we call gongusmas. And the Bible says, Paul says that your sanctification or the evidence thereof begins with your attitude. What is the inner attitude of your mind and of your heart when things don't go your way? Now, it's easy to rejoice when things are going your way, but not so easy when things are not going your way. When things are, when things are not going to your contentment, when things are not going to your satisfaction, that is when Paul says that is the time when God's people show the evidence of their sanctification, show the evidence of a sanctified attitude by, are you going to complain? Are you going to complain? And then we went to the next level, or the next evidence of our, our sanctification. And that was a sanctification that was evidenced in our what, church? Our attitudes. And we saw that in verse 15 where Paul says that. Now, I like the word that. I like the word that. And I want to teach you guys a, a, an original language principle. But you can understand this in English. Because the word that is a word that oftentimes we read and we blow right on past it. But the word that is an important word. Because the word that, especially when it's the first word, here's your clue, when it's the first word of the next verse, that's very important. And you can, you can just read English and get this. Whenever you read the Bible and you come to the word that, most of the time, especially like I said, when it's the first word of the next verse, most of the time is what we call in Greek language a purpose clause. That the preceding verse, the purpose for that is given after the word that. Paul says, for that, that, or you could translate it, for this purpose. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. So Paul says you show the evidence of your sanctification in your attitude for this purpose, that it may reveal itself in your actions. Church, what does Paul tell us here? What's the principle? That your attitude will dictate your behavior. 
You cannot escape it. You may be able to hide it for a while. You can never hide it from God. But you may be able to hide it from people for a while. But it eventually will escape. Your attitude will determine your behavior. That's why Paul says in verse 14, have the proper attitude for this purpose. Because your attitude shows your blamelessness. Your attitude shows your harmlessness. In other words, your attitude shows whether you've been mixed with the world or not. Because that's what the word harmless means. It means to be mixed with the world. And your attitude shows whether you're mixed with the world because it's going to come out in your actions. Because attitude always, always dictates action or behavior. Always. Folks, listen. You can't escape it. It always shows itself, your attitude, in your actions. Because here's the purpose, folks, that you may be sons of God without rebuke. Where? In the middle of a crooked and perverse nation. There's no question about that today, is it? That you and I are living today in a crooked and perverse nation. There is no question about that. And Paul's point is, is that we need to check our attitudes, church. We need to check our attitudes not only about things that happen to us in the world. We need to check our attitudes about the things of God. We need to sometimes fix our attitudes of what we want to call sin. We need to fix our attitudes of what we, what we think about the Word of God. We need to fix our attitudes of what we think about the church. We need to fix our attitude of what we think about each other. Sometimes we have to have an, an attitude reality check. We need to have an attitude reality check around the Word of God. Does my attitude, do my actions portray a sanctified person? Do my attitudes and does my actions portray someone that Paul says in verse 15 should shine as a light in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And then we saw the third evidence of sanctification was in our attention. Attitude, action, attention. And we spent some time here last time together, and I'll just ask you a question, where Paul says in verse 16, holding forth the word of life. And we said that was the word of God. Let me ask you a question today, church. Does the word of God grab your attention? Does its truths grab your attention? Now, this is not an all-inclusive list, of course. You can go to other portions of the Scripture, and you can get other evidences of sanctification. But this is the list that Paul gives us here. And remember we told you last time together that this list, that they're not only evidences of your level of sanctification, but listen, church, they're evidences of the, of the worth that Christ has in your life. Church, you need to, every day, you need to ask yourself this question. Some of us need to ask ourselves this question more than once. These are the questions that you need to ask yourself. Is he worthy of a godly attitude? The answer is yes. But the question is, in my life, is he? Do I show that Christ is worthy in my life by my attitude? Is Christ worthy? Is God worthy of godly actions in my life? And the answer is, church, yes. But the question is, in my life, do I show that he is worthy by my actions? And then is he worthy of our attention? Is the word of God worthy of your attention? The answer is, 
But the question is, let me tell you something. If you're texting when the preaching's going on, the Word of God isn't worthy to you. The Word of God isn't worthy to you. If you're checking emails during church, the Word of God isn't worthy to you because it's not grabbing your attention. If you're playing mind sweep during church, then the Word of God doesn't have your attention. Now, you may, be, you may be one of those people that think that you can balance both, but why would you? Why would you want anything that would take your attention away from the Word of God? Paul says the evidence of sanctification is how much attention that the, has the Word of God grabbed you. And if, we could, and if we could divide this portion of Scripture, I guess the third thing that we would say is we've looked at the ethic of sanctification and the evidences of sanctification. Is God worthy in our life? He is, but is He? And then we look at the examples of sanctification. And we want to notice together a few examples from the text of men who exemplified one way or another the traits of sanctification. No doubt there is no other favorite person in my, in my study of the New Testament next to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other person than that of the Apostle Paul. I relate to Peter. Most of us do. I relate to Peter because Peter opened his mouth to change feet. So I relate to Peter, but I love Paul. Now there was no doubt Paul was a sinner. I mean, you can read Romans 7 beginning in verse around verse number 14, and you can find out the fact of Paul's struggle with the flesh. But nonetheless, even though Paul fought the battle of the flesh, he was a man that had a deep, intimate relationship with Christ. And you can read Paul's writings and, and look at Paul's life. He is, the, he is the picture, he is the example of so much because his love for Christ just oozes from his writings. Let me say something to you folks. Your love for Christ should ooze from your language. Your, your love for Christ should ooze out of what your practices are. Your love for Christ should just ooze by what you think. And you can read Paul's writings and look at his, study his life, study his trials and everything that he went through, and you'll see a man that had just, he just oozes with love for Christ. Now, Paul is a far cry from the superstar mentality that many people are lauded as, as worthy of our celebrity emphasis today. Paul was a very meek man. Paul was a very humble man, but yet Paul was a very profound man. But Paul understood the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 27, and whosoever shall be chief among you, let him be your servants. Paul understood the, the, the place of humility. Paul understood the principle, church, that we all need to know. And this, get this, write this principle down, that greatness rises out of sacrifice. Did you get that? Greatness rises out of sacrifice. And let me remind you of what you already know. That in this particular text, the emphasis that Paul is placing is on the attribute of humility. This whole chapter, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, begins with humility. Where Paul says, begins in verse 2, where he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. 
but in what church? Lowliness or humility of mind. You see, that's where it starts. Humility of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. And then that leads Paul to this very important text in verse 5. And then you let this mind be in you. Here's the example of what I just told you, verses 2, and th- uh, two 3, and 4. Here's the example. You let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And after that passage on how to live out the attitudes of Christ, verses 12 to 16, he then gives us exam- three examples of this. And what Paul is really doing here, church, is he is putting flesh on the principle so that you and I can see how this principle works out in the life of himself, the life of Timothy, and the life of Epaphroditus. Because all three of these men were together working in Philippi, and all three of these men were together in Rome. In fact, it's probable that Timothy was the scribe that wrote the book of Philippians while Paul dictated it to him. So all three of these men were together in the church of Philippi. All three of these men were together in Rome. These three men had a bond together. And we see Paul as the sacrificial rejoicer, is what we've named him. We will see Timothy as the single-minded sympathizer. And then we will see Epaphroditus as a loving gambler. And I'm going to have to explain that one to you. But the loving gambler. Paul was a passionate man. He, he wanted, who did not want his life. Yeah, I'm preaching up a storm today, aren't I? Paul was a humble man. And he, he was a passionate man. And he did not want his life to be disqualified. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, But I keep under my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or I myself literally should be disqualified. Listen, church, Paul served Christ out of love. Paul served Christ also out of a, out of a healthy fear. That the fear that he had for Christ, the love that Paul had for Christ compelled him, made him zealous, and he made him very passionate about the way that he approached the ministry. Listen, church, let me give you another principle. I'm going to give you a lot of principles this morning over the next couple of weeks. And let me give you another principle. Listen, a person, the person who makes a difference in the world is the person with godly passion. The person who makes a difference in the world is a person that has godly passion. Not the person that just comes and sits in the pews and hymn halls and doesn't let the word of God affect their life, but the person that makes a difference in the world is the person that has godly passion. A passion to work out what God has put in them with fear and trembling. A passion to work out their salvation without complaining, no matter what the circumstances are of life. And the people that we need to follow are those people that live to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ at any cost. They pursue exaltation with total abandonment of self. And today we look at Paul. And in our text, Paul sets himself up as the illustration of a sacrificial rejoicer. But the question that often enters our mind, I know it has mine in years past and maybe it has yours as well, that isn't this a bit prideful? Isn't it a bit prideful for Paul to set himself up as the example? Shouldn't Paul have skipped over himself and just, 
and just talked about Timothy or just talked about Epaphroditus? Isn't this an act of pride for Paul to set himself up as the example of godliness? Not at all. And let me explain to you why. Remember, who is the author of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit led Paul to write these things because the Holy Spirit knew the reality of Paul's heart. But let me make another point. You want to know why you and I see what Paul is doing? Sometimes some people see and we kind of think in our mind that I would never set myself up as the example of righteousness. Well, Paul did. You want to know the reason why sometimes we are reluctant to set ourselves up as a spiritual model? Is because of this church. We know so much about what about ourselves that we know that the model is not what it ought to be. And so we hesitate to set ourselves up as the model of true righteousness because we know how flawed the model is. When a person is truly godly, when a person is truly deep, when a person truly walks in intimacy with God, there is a lack of self-consciousness there that is present in the hypocrite. So Paul can set himself up as the example because it is a reflection of his purest intent. It's a reflection of his pure of motives. Because this was done with no self-consciousness. Meaning that there was nothing in Paul's life that would cause him to question of whether he was an example of God-honoring fear. There was nothing in Paul's life. Paul told the Corinthians, my conscience is clear. Doesn't mean people didn't talk about Paul. Didn't mean that they didn't spread rumors about Paul. But Paul said, my conscience is clear. And there was nothing of Paul's self-consciousness that made him aware of, of hypocrisy. Because all of these things are an expression of a humble man. All of these things, church, are an expression of a spiritual man. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye what? Followers of who? Notice Paul did not say be followers of Christ. Paul said follow who? Me. But then in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be followers of me as I am of Christ. You see, Paul understood that his heart was that he was following Christ. Listen, that, that, that gives me a little joy this morning because I know Paul's life. I know what Paul said about himself, and I know that, that I can still be a sinner and still be an example. I can still mess things up, and I can still be an example because Paul did. Paul messed up royally. How royally did Paul mess up, Pastor? Well, read Romans 7. Paul says, every time I turn around, what? I'm doing what I know I should not be doing, and I'm not doing what I know that I should be doing. But even in the midst of that struggle with sin, Paul says, you, church, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, folks, when you and I mess up, it's not the end of the world. When you and I make a mistake, it's not game over. Here was a man, the Apostle Paul, the sacrificial rejoicer, that yes, struggled with sin, struggled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but could still say with a conscience clear before God, you follow me. And if you find it, church, if you find it difficult to say that about yourself, if you find it difficult to be like Paul and to establish yourself for the, as the example for others to follow, it is because in your life there's a self-consciousness about that. 
There's a, it's a self-consciousness that is born out of a sense of inadequacy because you know that you are not before God what you ought to be. If you today, men, cannot look at your children and say, follow me as I follow Christ, is because there's a sense of inadequacy in your, in your life because you know you're not what you ought to be before God. If you can't look at your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, and say, you follow me as I follow Christ, it's because you know that you're not the example that you ought to be. And Paul gives us examples of what sanctified people who see God as worthy, how they really live. So much of our life, folks, I'm afraid, is spent struggling with sin in the life of a believer, isn't it? I know in my own life, I can't speak for anybody but me. And I know in my own life, there's a constant battle with the flesh. There's a constant battle with the pride of life. There's a constant battle with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. It's a, it's a constant battle. And it probably is a constant battle with you because guess what? You're just like me. You're a sinner saved by sovereign grace just like me. And so no doubt there's a, con there's a constant battle in your heart as well. But you know what? You and I this morning are in pretty good company when you look at the Apostle Paul. That's why I love the Apostle Paul. But in our lives, when we struggle with sin, and even as believers, sometimes we get into a point where we want to hold on to those sinful patterns. And so much of the time, we measure the spiritual on the basis of the emotional. What do I mean by that? If you are having an emotionally good day, then everything must be good spiritually. And that may be the case. You may be having both a good emotional and a good spiritual day. That may be the case if there, are, if there is nothing in your life that needs to, to be surrendered and live obedience to the Lord. But if we hold back those things, church, that are needful for surrender, but we are having an emotionally good day, do not mistake that for a spiritually good day. Just because, just because life may be cruising along at a good speed, and just because life just may be, everything may be going right at that moment, at that time, that day, that does not mean God has forgotten about what you and I need to surrender. Because if there are things in our lives that need surrender, the good day has not been precipitated by surrender. And if that is the case, then the only thing we are having is an emotionally good day and not a spiritually good day. Because listen, church, here's another principle. Because the things that need to be surrendered will always need to be surrendered until they're surrendered. I don't care how emotionally Christian you may be feeling. Beloved, I don't care how emotionally good day you may be having. If there are things in your life that you know are sinful, that you haven't given to the Lord, they will always need to be surrendered until they're finally surrendered. And you'll never have that good day until you surrender those spirit, that spiritually good day until you surrender to the Lord. How about it in your life? How is it in your life, church? Have you, do you have anything in your life right now, this moment, that you need to surrender to the Lord? Maybe it's a sinful pattern. Maybe it's a bad attitude. Maybe it's bad actions. Maybe the Word of God doesn't have your attention that it should. You, that you're not gripped by its truths. Listen, church, you and I, and we all, and we all struggle with this at different levels throughout of our Christian life. All of us do. But listen, you and I should be so compelled to the Word of God as your body is compelled to breathe. 
You and I should be so awestruck. You and I should, you and I should, should, should feed off of the oxygen of Scripture, just like your body feeds off the oxygen of air. That's how important the Word of God should be in the life of a believer. How is it with you today? How is it with you today? Are you surrendered? Are you surrendered? Have you surrendered all to the Lord? I had a person come to me just the other day and said that they were telling me that they were having a good day. And I trust they were. But my question back to them, have you surrendered to the Lord? Have you surrendered? Because if you haven't surrendered to church, then you're not really having a good day. Paul is the example of a sacrificial rejoicer. Paul shows us three things in this text, three main headings. First, we see the imagery that's found in the first part of verse 17. And then we see the illustration that is found in the middle part of verse 17. And third, we notice the indication that is found in the last part of verse 17 and the first part of verse 18. Number one, the imagery. The imagery. I want us to pay this morning special attention to the imagery that Paul uses here. It's quite, the imagery that he uses is quite interesting. But the imagery also gives to us the depths of Paul's humility. That's why we call Paul the sacrificial rejoicing. Nothing characterized Paul's ministry more than love. Love for Christ. Love for his work. And love for the people. And that, saint, and that love that Paul had also extended to the unsaved, especially his Jewish brethren that were not saved. In fact, Paul, Paul decries the, the, the aching of his heart in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, where Paul says, and this just gives us an indication of the love and the burden that Paul had for his people, that he said, I could wish myself accursed of, for, from Christ, for my brethren, for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul said, listen, if I could die and go to hell, if I could give up my salvation and die and go to hell so that my brethren would be saved, I would do it, Paul said. And folks, I don't know about you, but that's a burden for the loss that few people have. That I would give up my salvation. I would be separated from Christ if it meant that my brethren be saved. But Paul also had a very special love, not only for his unsaved brethren, but Paul also had a special love for believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that it might but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. And I want to draw your attention to a passage that we read just a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And everyone that striveth for the mastery or the, or the prize is temperate, self-disciplined in all things. Now they do it to win a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. 
listen, church, Paul's love for other people was so great that he literally beat his body into subjection for the purpose of helping other believers. Paul feared that unless he served with, with love and with, with, with the unmixed maximum effort, he would be disqualified in his ministry. Because the Apostle Paul was clean, keenly aware of his calling and his responsibility. And Paul also understood that the accountability and the calling that he had also brought about responsibility. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found what, church? Faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But let's notice the imagery that Paul uses. Look at verse 17 of Philippians chapter 2. Yea and if. Stop right there. The word if is worthy of our notice. In the Greek language, there are certain phrases, there are certain words that constitute what are known as conditional clauses. And in the Greek, they have up, up to the fifth conditional clause. And if you read them in English, this is another one of those things I want to teach you. Just when you come across the word that, it's usually a purpose clause. When you come across the word if, it's usually a conditional clause. But it's important for you to understand what the proper conditional clause is. In verse, four, in verse 17 here, we have what's called the first condition Greek clause. And there's 315 of them in the New Testament. And basically what it is, it's not a clause that brings into question the truthfulness of the statement. But it is a statement that is made and, and the statement is assumed to be true for the sake of argument. In other words, it could accurately be translated since. Paul, said, Paul could actually be saying, yea and since I am offered. This is something that I am doing. Notice what he says in the, in the next phrase. He says, yea and if, notice this, I be offered upon the sacrifice. Stop right there. What's Paul talking about? Paul had something, church, very specific in mind when he used that phrase, since I am being offered upon the sacrifice. He is talking about something that goes on top of the sacrifice. The word offered there is a stato, and it literally means to be poured out. To be poured out. To be poured out as a drink offering. Now this imagery that Paul is using is not very familiar to us. Uh, it, was, it was very familiar to those in the ancient world. We talk about sacrifice today. We preach, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. But we, we really find that difficult because we really don't have a good imagery of the sacrifice because we've never seen a sacrifice done. We don't know what real sacrifice is. We've never seen the sacrifice of a ram or of a goat. The sacrifice that took place in the temple was a bloody, bloody action. But what Paul is talking about here is an altar. He's talking about an animal. And he's talking about a sacrifice. He is talking about blood. He is talking about suffering. And he is talking about being poured out as a drink offering. And this is the imagery that Paul has in mind. And as you look at this imagery, you see the humility in Paul's life. That he is without complaint in his working out his salvation. And he realizes that all he's doing is he's being the drink offering, which he gladly does. Now here's what Paul had in mind. 
In the ancient world, when they would have, when they would give a sacrifice, you can look at this in Numbers chapter 24. In the ancient world, when they, whenever the high priest would give a sacrifice, he would go into the altar and he would put the sacrifice on top of the altar. They would burn up the altar. And then the last thing they would do is they would pour out a drink offering. And what that was is either water or wine. Hosea chapter 9 verse 4 talks about the fact that it could be wine, but more times than not it was water. And what they would do is they would take that water and they would pour that water on the sacrifice and then they would immediately vaporize and they would rise up to the heavens to, to in, a, in a picture of giving the sacrifice into the nostrils of the deity because the reason I say of the deity is because pagan and Christians use what was called a drink offering. And Paul's imagery here is this. He says, that's what I am. That's what I am. He says, I'm just the topping of your sacrifice because you church are making the real sacrifice. That's why Paul says in verse 17, I am being offered or I am being poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice. You see Paul's humility? Paul says, I'm not the real sacrifice here. You are the real sacrifice. I'm just the end result. I'm just the topper. Folks, let me ask you a question. Do you have that type of humility? Or do you see yourself as, oh, what was me? I'm always suffering for Jesus. Boy, my life could not get any worse. Listen, where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? When he penned the book of Philippians? Jail. Jail where? Jail in Rome. Handcuffed 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier. Where was the Philippians? They were at home in church. They were having dinner with family. Taking rides down the road. On their camel. But what does Paul say about them? You're the real sacrifice. I'm just the topping. You see his humility? Folks, do you and I have that kind of humility? Because let me tell you something. Until humility steps into your life, you will always struggle with the deeds of the flesh. Because repentance... And victory and surrender of sin in our life always, always begins with humility of heart and mind. Because until you and I realize that what we are doing is sinful before God, and we humble ourselves and surrender that sin before God, we will never live, church, truly surrendered lives. We will never, church, live truly sanctified lives we will never truly live lives that show that christ is worthy in our life now paul wasn't concerned here about his death he wasn't talking about this his, his offering this libation this drink offering being his death because paul had absolutely no idea that he was going to die because he says in verse 20 verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 24 nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you Paul says, listen, God had his chance to kill me. He obviously isn't, so I'm going to remain in the flesh because that's evil for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance of joy of faith. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So Paul wasn't thinking here he was going to die. He was calling his imprisonment the drink offering. But then says to the church, you're making the real sacrifice. Humility. Humility. Paul says, and since I am being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. 
humility. Folks, do you have that type of humility? The type of humility that sees yourself as a sacrificial rejoicer? You sacrifice for others because, listen, true gain is brought out of true sacrifice. And I'm not talking about materially. I'm talking about spiritually. Remember, nowhere in the Bible are you and I promise material wealth. I'm talking about spiritually. The true spiritual sacrifice is what brings the true spiritual gain. And part and parcel of our true spiritual sacrifice is offering to God those things in our life that are needful to be offered. Part of the true spiritual sacrifice is, and part of the truly living life, a life that is a living sacrifice is surrendering those things to God that we truly need to surrender. Paul sees himself as the drink offering, the final touch of somebody else's sacrifice. He sees himself as being poured out right now. My imprisonment is me being poured out right now. Paul, listen folks, Paul was willing to give his entire life for the people of God. Is that you? Is that me? Are we willing to give our entire self, our entire being, are we willing to give our all to offer ourselves, number one, to God, but offer ourselves to one another? Folks, that's where true surrender starts, is loving God supremely. And surrendering to God all in your life that needs to be surrendered. Giving to, not holding anything back, but surrendering to God everything that needs to be surrendered. Well, Pastor, I, I just don't see this as sinful. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You know how I know? Usually the person that says, well, I, I, usually the person, people that see themselves, what they're doing as sinful, they usually make one or two statements. The first statement is, well, I don't see that as sinful. Second statement is, I'm not convicted about that yet. Yes, you are. How do I know? Because if you weren't, you wouldn't have said that. The very fact that you know, that the very fact that you would say, I'm not convicted about that yet, is proof positive that you are convicted about that yet. And the fact that you would say, well, I don't think that's sinful, is proof positive that, yeah, you think that's sinful. You just don't want to deal with it. And we all do that, don't we? But part and parcel, church, of a truly sacrificial rejoicing life begins. A life is truly evidence of sanctification. A life is truly evidence that God is worthy in our life is when you and I surrender all. We're willingly, we just pour ourselves on top of the altar. Just pour ourselves on the altar of sacrifice. Without abandonment, church, you just pour yourself out before God. That's, that, people don't talk like that anymore, do they? People even in the church, they don't talk about pouring themselves out before God anymore. People in church don't talk. You don't hear sermons from pulpits anymore that says, pour yourself out on the altar. Yeah, people come to the altar here and they go back to their seat changed. I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about we need to pour ourselves out on the altar before God and let ourselves get burned up for Him. Where, listen, it is nothing left of us. That's the problem in the church, is that it's too much of us still alive and not enough of us dead. And Paul said of himself, and God calls on us, you pour yourself out on the altar before God. Let God just burn you up so there's nothing left of you and it's all of Him. Folks, that's true sacrifice. 
And with that true sacrifice of the ultimate price of yourself brings true rejoicing, true humility, true joy. Is that you this morning? Are you willing to surrender all by just pouring yourself out on the altar before God? Just letting God burn you up to where there's nothing left of you. And it's all of you. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ comes. God bless you.